listening to the sermon podcast from House for All Sinners and Saints. We are an Evangelical Lutheran Church in America congregation in Denver, Colorado. And you can find out more about us at www.houseforall.org. It's been on the whole time. Good thing I haven't been singing. There's part of me with my voice like this that was tempted just to say, you know those Ten Commandments? Go and do likewise. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In all seriousness, I do have a confession to make, and I hope that this open and honest pouring out of my heart doesn't diminish my standing in your minds if that's possible. I worry that this confession will make me seem like a bad person, an even worse Christian, and maybe the worst pastor there is, but here it goes. Every time I hear this scripture passage from John or its cousins in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is what I hear in my head. Dun-da-dun-dun, dun-da-dun, dun-da-dun-dun, dun-da-dun-dun-dun. For those of you who don't know, that's a theme song from Indiana Jones. I have this mental picture of a Jesus in a fedora and leather jacket swinging a whip around just like Harrison Ford did in the Indiana Jones trilogy. And yes, I did say trilogy because that fourth fourth kingdom of the crystal skull is as much an abomination as the entire Nickelback catalog. And it is as evil as drowning puppies. I said it was evil. What was I talking about? Uh, Jesus cleansing the temple to the tune of Indiana Jones theme song. Now there's a lot that has been and can be said about this particular scene. And especially the way in which John treats it differently than the others. Most of the commentaries I've read and the conversations I've had about this text lead down the road of Christian supersessionalism over and against the Jewish faith. The fact that Jesus literally overturns the system of buying animals for sacrifice is important to understanding God's mind in some way. But more than what God did in Jesus is how God did it. And no, I'm not talking about the fact that Jesus makes a super awesome whip and goes all crazy. The how of God's intervention in the world takes a drastic turn when Jesus comes on the scene. Rather than, you know, creating the whole world or setting bows in the sky or addressing a certain privileged few in a mountain fog and giving them a set of rules to write down, God takes on human flesh and bone in order to more effectively communicate just who this God is that seems to be demanding the sacrifice Of all these critters. As one writer puts it so elegantly, God chooses to localize love in a human body. This concept is so foreign to some of us in this community from what we grew up with. We were taught that the body is evil and the soul is perfect, that we must deny our bodies so that we can follow God. But instead, what God did in Jesus is to reclaim the holiness of our bodies, to remind us that God created all of creation, including our flesh and bone, and declared it good. 
God then takes an extra step and comes down in human form. In doing so, God obliterates the dividing wall between the divine human experience. Now that we might, not that we might ever know what it is to be divine, rather God has embraced the fullness of human joy and pain, human love and hate, human gain and loss. Does this experience matter? Surely it does. Surely it sends ripples through the very fabric of our own reality and perspective on our own selfhood. Now we tend to deal with the idea of the incarnation at another point in the Christian year. We preachers usually pontificate on the significance of God's donning of human clothes when we have texts in front of us that highlight the story of Christ's nativity. It's easier to reflect on God's embrace of the world when angels herald his arrival, when a virgin says yes to being the instrument through which God steps on the scene, and when Jesus is a babe in a manger. It's one thing to call out into the future, O come, O come, Emmanuel, but quite another to speak into the present moment, O sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded, with thorns thine only crown. But really, what better time than Lent to speak of the humanness, the bodiness of God's incarnational love when that humanness is on fullest display, when we bear witness to Jesus' body anointed and broken and crucified and laid in a tomb. What better time to reflect on the inc what the incarnation really means than here in this moment? And so I did just that this week. I read a number of simple, beautiful reflections on the incarnation from a variety of thinkers. Our poem that we'll hear in a few moments is one of these reflections, but I thought I would just share three that really spoke to me this week and let them sit amongst us without interpretation, without reflection. I'll also post the link to the page from which all of these came from. So here we go, three reflections on the Incarnation. Amy Julia Becker writes, God is love. When my mother-in-law was dying, she needed people, in, people to place ice chips in her mouth and rub lotion on her body. When my children were babies, they needed us to rock them to sleep and change their diapers. I prefer sentimental statements to dirty hands and tired limbs. Jesus may have preferred to stay away from this world of stables and carpentry and crucifixion. But the incarnation shows me that God's love isn't abstract. It is as concrete as a baby in a manger, as a young man in a temple, as a rabbi on a cross. Carl Gregg reflects, the incarnation matters because it is particular. God is not merely an abstract theoretical other, Instead, we are invited to find God in the diversity of people, places, and times of our particular life. How much more particular can you get than finding a God in one first-century peasant from a backwater village? The incarnation also matters because it is bodily, calling us to engage life, not only with our minds and spirit, but with our bodies. Further, the incarnation matters because it is earthly, reminding us that this world matters and that creation is good and very good. And finally, Fred Schmidt says, 
If Jesus is just a good guy, then the world has one more hero but nothing more. And we are stuck with no way out. You can stack up martyrs like firewood, and many have. But the world will remain broken. If God had not bothered to tell us that we are beloved by entering into our lives, then we are stuck with the architect of the cosmos living at a comfortable, divine arm's length from our chaos. Nicely celebrated at the opening of Congress and football games, but no earthly good. The incarnation says no to both alternatives. God is different enough to be capable of saving us and enough like us to understand our needs. For those of us who bear the name Christian, the incarnation, the embodiment of God, is an invitation to consider our own bodies in time and space and relationship. It means exploring our bodies not for what we would change, that few extra pounds, this freckle or mole, the way our body is addicted to some substance or another, or the way our body experiences depression or anxiety. Instead, this is an exploration of the way in which God has chosen to localize love in our bodies in some way, shape, or form. It is an invitation to ponder new ways of letting that love pour out into the world, and in doing so, experience the love of God in Christ in a deeper more profound way. So as we continue to celebrate our Lent, may our celebration be one of God's love made known in bodily form here and now and forever. Amen.